Welcome to our Women's Life Stories podcast space. I am Gabriela Diaz de Sabates, a professor at Columbia College Chicago and the creator of two new courses at Columbia, Women's Life Stories and Unsung Heroines. We all tell stories. Think about it. When was the last time you told a story? Can you remember the last story you have heard? What are the stories that some family members tell and retell at every Thanksgiving gathering? What is that story that you love the most? Life stories are not only fascinating, they are of foundational importance because they reinvent, reform, and refashion personal and collective identities. Stories bring to light different communities of interest, practice, and or purpose that women identified people inhabit create, and participate in. Each of the short podcasts presented here explores stories embedded within creative ecosystems. Through these, we learn about the wide range of women's life stories in Chicago and beyond, establishing connections between the local and the global, the personal and the collective. These stories allow us to explore the processes of knowing about, listening, and telling of life stories while evidencing interlocking markers of identity such as gender, sexual identity, class, race, ethnicity, national origin, language, religion, etc. Listening to these stories provides us with the opportunity to reflect upon cultural assumptions, to consider similarities and differences between observed cultures and our own experiences, and to question issues of identity, power, and marginalization. In this segment, the live stories that you will listen to were produced by Columbia College students enrolled in the Ansan Hearings class in the spring of 2020. Students worked throughout the semester defining what heroism was, identifying unknown heroines, and bringing them to the forefront by telling their stories. The result is an eloquent testament of the many facets in which creativity, love, determination, and strength manifest. What it is also especially significant about all of these stories is that they were crafted in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. Students persevered to tell their stories while their lives were directly affected by this pandemic in multiple and unimaginable ways. Students worked with whatever materials they had at hand after being displaced from their spaces of learning, working, living, and connecting with others, after being physically separated from their loved ones and while sheltering in place. Surprised and startled by unimaginable pandemic and breathing uncertainty every minute, these creative storytellers had the presence of mind and love for learning to do what they know how to do best, keep pushing forward. So here are their stories. Laila Durrett, in her piece, Women Who Have Made Us, highlights the life and accomplishments of Ana Mendieta, a Cuban-American performance artist, sculptor, painter, and video artist that has influenced Laila as a professional artist herself.
Hello, this is Lila, and I am here recording a special little episode of Women Who Made Us. Today, I'm going to be talking about the Cuban-American performance artist Ana Mendieta, or Ana Mendieta. I learned about her first when I took contemporary art history, which we covered modern and contemporary art, um, in my 11th grade of high school. Mendieta, Ana, <laughs> Ana Mendieta, was an artist she did really, really incredible, unique work. She did not live an incredibly long life, which I will discuss later, but first I just want to give you kind of a basics of her life. Aunt Mendieta was born in Havana, Cuba um, on November 18th, 1948. Obviously Cuba was a very, especially during this time, it was very volatile, it was, you know, it could be called dangerous, and so um, her father, when she was 12, joined um, anti-Castro counter-revolutionary forces, and so she and her sister were sent to the U.S. Um, under Operation Pedro Pan, and they spent the first few weeks in refugee camps, and then they were sent to an orphanage in Iowa, and in 1966, she started to study painting at the University of I Iowa, and she was also reunited with her mother and her younger brother, and then her father eventually joined them in 1979. He had spent 18 years in a Cuban political prison for his involvement in the Bay of Pigs invasion. And so, obviously, she, just her childhood, um, I'm sure there's a lot more information out, but I just want to give you the basics. It was not, you know, a typical, safe, normal childhood. There was a lot of moving around, there was a lot of confusion, and so... I think, for me, that makes it clear why she was drawn to art and creation, but we all are drawn to different things. Um, so she got a BA in art in 1969 and an MA in painting in 1972, those were both from the University of Iowa, and she, painting for her, it kind of wasn't enough. She wanted something more powerful. She wanted to be able to express herself more accurately, so she um, enrolled in the university's very progressive MFA intermedia program. In 1973, Anna traveled with her MFA class to Mexico. She began her sil silhouette series, um, which she did from 1973 to 1980, and where her body, she would press her body into outdoors and then take a picture of the impression in like the dirt in the bed of a river. And it was really just about her connection with her body and her connection with the earth which I think, I love performance art and I adore land art. And this is like, I <laughs> I first saw her pieces and was like so incredibly drawn to these images of, of the body and the earth and the impression we have on the earth and the impression the earth has on us. And that was something she was really drawn to. So in the same year, she performed a piece called Untitled or called Untitled Rape Scene because it was in response to the rape and murder of a local student. And so she created this elaborate scene in her own apartment where she, her body served as the representation of that woman. And it was a very violent, a very um, gory scene. And it was, I'm sure, incredibly, because she just opened it for people to come walk through and to see her still body lying there as if she had been raped and murdered was, I'm sure, an incredibly different, difficult thing to see. And she also made a video called Sweating Blood. And so a lot of her work and was about violence against women. She used art and she used her body 
to address this violence against women, and she did not shy away from blood and violence and really hard subjects in her art. And so it was about the mid-70s when um, Anna started exhibiting internationally and visiting New York, and so in 1978, after she completed her MFA, she moved to New York. She loved the city, she wanted to be there, and definitely during this time, New York was the place for art. It was the arts capital of America, and you could even say the world. Um, in 1979, she presented a solo exhibition of her photographs at AIR, ARI Gallery in New York, and she met the minimalist sculptor Carl Andre, and in 85, they um, got married. And their relationship was short. It was only a few, they were only married for a few months, and um, it, it was not a loving, healthy relationship <laughs> as far as people could tell. And so in 1980, a little bit before they got married, after she started doing um, these exhibitions and presentation, she was awarded a John Simon Guggenheim and Foundation Fellowship and a National Endowment Arts for the Grant, and she was invited to exhibit in shows sponsored by the Cuban government, and she, so in the early 80s, she kind of had a period of reconnecting with her homeland and making art about herself and Cuba. And then in 83, she actually, 1983, she spent a year in Italy because she got the Rome Prize. And then the first time she started to do studio-based sculpture because all of her work was very much rooted out in the environment and not in a studio. And so like 1983 to 85, she lived between Rome and New York. She tragically died in 1985. She's obviously not very old. And her death is, it's this, it's absolutely tragic. She fell 34 floors from the window of her New York apartment. And there's a lot of controversy and a lot of tension and disagreement on her death. Um, a lot of people believe that she was pushed by Carl Andre. Um, People say they heard they were having a fight, Carl Andre had scratches, he was almost immediately acquitted of it, but to this day, her family members, her friends do believe she was killed. And so, in 1992, the Guggenheim held um, a show for a gallery that was trying to open in Soho. Outside of it was about 500 feminist protesters, and many of them were carrying banners that read, where is Anna Mendieta? And it's because the Guggenheim has always showed much more art by mostly white men, more than absolutely anybody else. And Anna Mendieta had died seven years early, and work by Carl Andre had been included in the exhibition, but none of her work was included. But what I really want to get to with this is... Anna Mandietta was not super well-known. She was prolific in her art making, but other than feminist artists and people in the feminist art world at the time, people didn't really know who she was. Her first exhibition ever wasn't until after her death in 1987. Not her first exhibition, but her first survey exhibition of all of her work was in 1987. She wasn't even alive for it. And she just really was overlooked a lot. And I would say she's not nearly as much, but I still believe that her work is not known to the extent it should be. She called her a lot of her work earth body art, and it was such evocative performance pieces that are so important about beauty and belonging and gender. And she used blood as a magical thing, and she talked about the power of female sexuality and the horror of male sexual violence. and. She would put facial hair on her face and disguise herself as a man, and just everything she did was about her womanhood, about 
her sexuality, about her background, and it's something that I think is so absolutely important to see in art, even these difficult, challenging pieces of art that some people probably don't want to look at as much. But I think it's really important to look at these pieces of art. The work Anna Mendieta did was so important, and I wish, you know, she could know how meaningful I found her art and how meaningful young women like me are finding her art today, but she can't. Um, but I think the only thing we can choose to do is keep creating and keep making sure we have women in art spaces and keep making sure that women have opportunities to be artists and to show their art without any fear or without any limitations. And I just think Anna Mandietta and her work is a great way to get that discussion started. So um, thank you for listening. This was just a little extra special episode talking about her, talking about her art. But I just want to leave you with um, Anna Mandietta and I want you to go and look at her art and experience her work because I really do believe it will change you. And just keep an eye out for women artists, for women who you see making art and make art. Please, even if you don't feel like you're good at it, even if you feel like no one's ever gonna see it, just make the art that you need to make. Um, thank you. This is Lila, and this is Women Who Made Us. Um, bye. Anthony Oleskiewicz introduces to us Mireya McGee, originally named Mireya Morales Velasquez, an immigrant business owner woman who he admires, appreciates, and loves. Anthony highlights the life of Mireya and reflects on the lives of so many other immigrant Mexican women through Mireya's experiences. My name is Mireya McGee. Uh, <laughs> well, well, what was your name when you came over here? Mireya Morales Velasquez. Morales Velasquez. So you came to America about 50 years ago. About 50 years ago, I came to my aunt invited me to come here for vacation and uh, I decided I wasn't good doing nothing you know and um, all of a sudden I would say well let's go look for a job and um, we went and, uh, and to a factory and on our way back when we get out of the bus uh, we passed by a beauty shop and my aunt said, well, I know that beauty shop. And if you want to go and ask if they have, you know, an opening. So I came in and um, I asked for the job and they told me, yes, we need uh, some people to work. So if you want to show up tomorrow and they were busy and the owner was working by himself, but uh, he said, you want to come tomorrow? And I said, okay, that's fine. And when I was walking out of the door, uh, he stopped me and he said, do you think you can stay today because I'm busy? And I said, yes, I stay. So the first day it was when I asked for the job and I started working there. So how long did you work there? I worked for my, um, well, there was... It will be my brother-in-law later on, mm -hmm. uh, but I worked with him uh, maybe four or five months. 
I don't remember exactly, but I went back to Mexico mm. and that time. And But I when I came back again, like a year later, I worked with him again. And then they started asking me if uh, I can stay longer. Uh, he wanted to move from, to do different business. Mm. And then he started uh, asking my husband if he wants to buy it, his brother, it will be his brother. And my husband didn't want to get the, the business by himself. He was afraid that he won't have enough people to work with him. So he said no to the, that offer and then they asked me and I said the same thing. I didn't want to, you know, get that responsibility all by myself. My English I wasn't still not that good, but I mean it was worse. <laughs> <laughs> so um then we talk about it and then uh, uh we'll say well why don't we buy it together? And we did and uh after a year I got married and then we work. We worked together for many years many years <laughs> and that's uh, that's the way it happened you know when you came to America did you speak English when you first started and hi bye <laughs> no no just a few words I started learning I did not go to school for English but I started learning in the business and little by little you know, I started to understand a little bit more. People was, customers were real helpful for that. They try real hard, you know, to, um, for me to understand what they need or what they want and uh, try to teach me. And of course, my husband would, you know, make a good part of that because he was the one that showed me to. His uh, Spanish was not too <laughs> good, uh, but we managed. Mm, we managed. And you guys managed to, uh, to, you guys managed to have a relationship even though Exactly, guys... exactly. I think love also need, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you don't need to, to talk too much, you know, you show, oh, you know, you, you just, uh, find a way when, when you really want something and, uh, I guess we put a lot of effort on that too make ourselves understand each other love is the universal language is exactly i wanted to say that but my vocabulary is not no that. i you're right no you i understand <laughs> what was it like going into business what, what was what what kind of hard, what was hard about that or what was easy about that or? well i think that going to a business and love what you're doing for my part it was awesome. I mean, it has no problem um, when you're young. Uh, you not fear. You you don't get nervous. You just do what you have to do. I mean, we work hard, and I think it was the hardest part work working. You know, but I mean, other than that, it's like um, pretty easy for me. I can say that uh, maybe because my father had a different kind of business, but my father had a business in, in Mexico, so I I knew a little bit about how to handle 
of business, you know, having people to work for you, you know, mm, pay the people that they work for you and, and tell the people what to do. And so it, for me, it wasn't bad at all. It just came easy, natural. When did starting a family and having kids and that sort of thing come well, into Well, we got married in 73. Mm -hmm. And we went to Mexico. And we were wanted to get married in Mexico. But we couldn't do it because we didn't have enough time. And he, because he's, he was an American citizen, he needed to get up a special permit. And so it was going to take too long. We didn't have time. So we came back and we got married in Laredo, Texas. And then it was in 73. And then I think I have my first kid on, I think, 75. Donnie, right? Donnie. Donnie, yeah. And then I have my daughter five years later. Um, then it's it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I only had two kids, but I mean, we raised another Joe that I was my husband's kid. Did that have any effect on the way you ran your business? I think God always looked after me because I always have somebody to help me with the kids. When there were babies, you know, I had my husband's aunt to take care of the kids. And uh, then my mother uh, started living with me, so she would stay with the kids. So I really didn't have, and plus, you know, we have days off, like a couple of days out of the week was me being at home, a couple of days out of the week it was my husband being home. So we managed to not to let the kids the whole week, you know, mm -hmm. by themselves. Makes sense. And, I, and like I say, it's always, always somebody at the house. What was your toughest struggle raising two kids and raising later two more kids? My biggest struggle, I think always trouble having kids, you know, <laughs> if it's not one kid or something. But the biggest, biggest struggle to take care of the kids, probably there was that, you know, that I wasn't home enough to be with the kids. Uh, we, what I tried to do is then when the kids got out of the, out of school, um, most of the vaca summer vacation, uh, I'll take my kids to Mexico and then I spend the time with them, mm. with my family. And now that my kids are out and I, I do still go to Mexico and spend, you know, a couple months over there too. Mm. No, I don't have to come back because the kids not come going back mm -hmm. to school, so I stay what I can stay. If there's anything you want people to know from your life, uh, what do you think they should know? What like whether it's a, something about your life or something or a lesson they can take away from it? I just wanted to to tell you and people that uh, you can do anything you want if you put your mind into. No matter if you have. Because when I came in, I had no papers. Uh, I was an illegal, and I uh, I didn't speak the language, and I still I will be able to I was able to you know raise my kids in here. Uh, I think uh, 
God blessed me with a lot of things, uh, and I work, we worked hard for it. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we did. <laughs> no, I, we did work hard for it, and and I'm happy about that, that I accomplished something in my life. You know, with time, you realize that uh, it pays off. First of all, I don't have to depend uh, money-wise. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm, I'm not being a burden to somebody else. I can do it on my own. I got my own house. I got an income. And uh, I'm happy, so I don't have to bother any of my kids. <laughs> Or my grandkids. <laughs> um, I, how does it pay off family-wise? Mm, family-wise, I think uh, the kids will know what I did because they see it. And I'm okay with the kids and they're okay with me. And they love me and I love them. And I think it, this what is the most important thing you know uh, that uh, you can you, that you have uh, the love of your family thank you that's it Kaylee Fowler talks about how when she took her first art class with Boots her first art teacher her life changed Boots ignited in her the love for painting Carolyn Boots Caluet Tyner hated her first name and insisted that we all call her Boots instead. I only ever heard her say her legal name once when I was taking lessons under her, and it took a couple of misspellings before I could find her online. She was always just Boots to me. Boots was my very first art teacher, something I didn't know at the time would be so important to my future. I should explain how I met Boots in the first place. Back in 2012, I was 14 and had a penchant for drawing. My mother thought I should take some art lessons and suggested that we look into the classes offered at the Hobby Lobby down the street. I didn't really want to take art lessons. After all, for me, this was just a hobby. I wanted to ride horses, as me and my sister had been doing for the past year or so. But mom said it was now getting too expensive and that we would have to drop it. So fast forward to a few days later, she walked me to the back of the craft store on a Tuesday morning to a smaller room hidden in the back behind the beads in the decorative section. The room was filled with old Cajun grandmothers and one in particular steps forward. The thing I remember about Boots are small, specific parts of her that made up her whole being. I remember her long, curly gray hair, always half up, half down. I remember her eyes, wrinkled at the edges, with a dash of blue eyeliner on the bottom waterline. She wasn't much taller than I am now, though at the time, at 14, it felt like she could look down at me. Her voice was warm, southern, with the twang not very noticeable. Firm and friendly. Lessons would be every Tuesday and last five hours, the one hour lunch break. The painting lessons were filled with old Cajun grandmothers who doted on me, bringing me candies and teasing me throughout the lessons. We mostly painted from images or still lives. The first lesson I showed up for, I spent most of my time mixing paint rather than actually painting. We started in black and white and stayed in black and white for most of my time painting there. Boots explained that a well-mixed palette was the foundation of a good painting I made sure that I would spend time mixing up a range of at least seven shades before I could actually start painting. I couldn't really say if Boots would call herself a feminist or not. I know, though, that she was a very independent woman and that she believed in taking care of herself and her family. She also made sure of implementing in her students the value of their own work 
and encouraging them in their craft. She was also very open and vocal about her beliefs and her opinions. I remember at one time I brought in a canvas board that had a Picasso quote pasted on the back. She immediately spoke about how she despised Picasso. She hated Picasso, whether as a person or as an artist, I don't remember. But his lasting influence as one of the master of modern art didn't seem to sway her opinion in the slightest. She went to college for Spanish. She wanted to go for art, but her father didn't believe she could make a living as an artist, and thus refused her from going to school for art. Clearly, this didn't stop Boots from continuing to pursue her goal of being an artist. And after college, she began to make a living not as a Spanish instructor, or even a painter, but as a doll maker. Her dolls were handmade in the 80s, with soft features and realistic hair. There's a Patches, a Peaches, a Shelly, a Gumdrop, but her most popular doll is Sugar Britches. Sugar Britches, the most well-known doll made under the Boots Tyner name, sells on average around $60 to $200 used. There are others you can find for cheaper, but these are always assumed to be knockoffs. There are now more reproductions and interpretations of her dolls than there are originals, it seems like. Strange to think that this woman I knew for painting has a legacy that includes forgery of her work, although I'm sure she would be miffed if she knew it was happening. I remember once sitting in the back of the craft store and hearing a baby cry somewhere in the store, and Boots declaring how she loved the sound of babies crying, not for any strange reason, but because it meant she could take care of them. I think the faces of the dolls look a lot like the faces of children she used to paint. By the time I met her, Boots was no longer a doll maker. She was always a painter to me, her past as a sought-after doll maker, just another part of her unusual history. By far the most important thing she ever did, as I sat there painting a circle with no idea that this would lead me down the career path I am currently on. She told me sternly that I was never to give my art away for free, that it had value, and that even for family or friends, I had to always take care to not let people close to me think that they could have my work for free as a result. It would then become less valuable in their and my own eyes, she warned, and a painting freely acquired was more likely to end up in a goodwill than lovingly collected. There is an unfortunate irony, as, after her death, her other sister, Suzanne, who I never met but heard of in tale like some kind of Hallmark villain, reclaimed many of Boots' work and sold them for dirt cheap, or got rid of them altogether. This ethos had been so important to my value as an artist, and while I'm sure my family didn't appreciate it every time I insisted on payment as a small teen if, if they wanted my work, it did result in my first experience being paid for my work, even from family. The last few months of painting with Boots, she became a little less focused on teaching us. We had learned a lot and were able to paint mostly for ourselves, and would only ask for help when we didn't know what to do. And she had gotten very much into beading. Instead of painting, she would sit with her collection of beads, and bead strings for jewelry and embroidery for hours. Her mother was very sick, and it took up most of her thoughts, clearly. We never stuck with too many things growing up, and the excuse was always money. We dropped out of horse riding prior to the painting lessons due to money, and though the lessons Boots offered were, and still would be considered dirt cheap, one time after a lesson Mom said I would have to stop going, at least for now, because it was becoming too much to afford. I didn't know it would be the last time I would see Boots. When I left painting classes with her, she seemed older from when I first met her. More weary. She sat diligently beating for hours, her boldness a little bit quieter, a bit more thinned. She'd been taking care of her mother with dementia for years now, and she believed she was going to pass any time now. Her father was also old, and she worried about him. We didn't know it then, but she herself was facing severe health issues as well. Two years after this, I would have returned to the back room of the craft store. I had just graduated from high school a few months earlier, and determined to become an artist of a professional standard, was going to attend a studio school nearby to hone my skills. But before that, I wanted to take a few more painting lessons to prep ahead of time. I had noticed recently that the past several times I drove by the old store, 
that Boots' signature blue truck was gone. And then at one point, my mom went into the store and into the back of the craft room to see how everyone was doing. We didn't know, but Boots had died a few months earlier of intestinal cancer. When I returned to the back of the craft store for the very first time, several years later, I didn't find Boots. She'd already passed. What I did find was a new teacher, Little Jean, a former student under Boots who had come to teach in her stead. And in this class were some of the very same students I had painted with a few years prior, the same old Cajun grandmothers who used to dote on me, still meeting every week to paint and eat food together. It was the exact same world Boots had built, still carrying on even without her. I know her influence in people's lives stretched well beyond mine, to a whole host of other students who had their very first painting lessons with her, to collectors of dolls who valued her ideas and craftsmanship well beyond her realization, to members of her community who she taught the value of art to. She gave me the most important lesson to carry into my career, to value my own work. She taught me that no is sometimes the only reason you need to give someone as an answer, and that I know should always be respected. She lives on as a sort of mystical figure in my mind. The details of her lives and our time together faded at the edges, like an old photo through time. But her influence lives on, in lives that may not recognize it at first. But for every student that has a work with her touch on it, or a collector with a doll with soft cheeks and soft eyes, she leaves a physical reminder of herself in our lives. I remember several instances when Boots or one of the other women in the class told me not to forget them when I was a famous artist. Boots especially told me that I was a natural and then I could go far if I wanted to. Some of my memories of this time have faded as I've grown older, but I've never forgotten them, and I hope that I never will. Sitting in a small room in a small store in Texas with a group of chatty older women doesn't seem on the front like it would have that big of an impact, but it did in my life and in the lives of many others, I know for sure. Boots was someone determined to make her way through the world in her way. She imbued in me the lessons and qualities that I take into my life and my career now, and for that, I'll always be grateful. Katie Assery introduces Lori Stewart to us, her boyfriend's mother, and a woman Katie loves and admires, and with whom she has bonded through having lived similar experiences of abuse and neglect in their early years. When I think of what it means to be an unsung heroine, I think of Lori Stewart. I met Lori shortly after I started dating her son, Trevor, is his name, my junior year of high school. The more that we learned about each other, we realized that our childhoods were strangely similar. And although I can only hope to live half the adult life that she has led, uh, we found out we were so similar when we took the ACE test. ACE stands for Adverse Childhood Experience. It's essentially this quiz that was developed by the CDC, and if you get a low score on it, you had an okay childhood. And if you score high, you've lived through a lot of trauma. People with high scores on this test usually suffer from extreme anxiety, depression, they're more likely to have heart diseases, diabetes, and lots of other horrible trauma effects like PTSD. Uh, there are only 10 questions and you can score from a zero to a 10. And the question asks things like, um, or the test asks things like, before your 18th birthday, did a parent or adult in the household often or very often swear at you, insult you, put you down, humiliate you, or act in a way that made you afraid that you might be physically hurt. Uh, and the questions are all like that. Uh, and they ask things like, you know, were you physically abused? Were you molested? Were you, um, were there drugs or alcohol in the house? Things like that. And that is pretty much, uh, Lori and I's entire childhood. It was, um, we were both raped 
several times by older men before we were 18 and our parents were very neglectful, very abusive, uh, very physically abusive as well. And um, we both scored a 10 out of 10 on this test. And while these scores basically tell you that you're for life, uh, Lori overcame this completely. She went to school entirely on scholarships and grants. Her mom would not even file FAFSA for her. Uh, and she attended UT, the University of Texas, and got her degree in theater education. Uh, many people with high ACE scores do not graduate from high school, let alone college. Uh, but as soon as she got to college, she went to the counseling center and unloaded 18 years of abuse and neglect onto a counselor. And she left feeling a million times lighter. And she told me for an entire year leading up to college that I needed to go to the counseling center at Columbia and get help. I was having night terrors and panic attacks, especially in the summer. So I did exactly what she did and unloaded 18 years of abuse and neglect onto a Columbia counselor. And I was then led to a sliding scale therapist. And it's made a tremendous improvement in my life. Lori has taught me not to be ashamed in asking for help a lesson that I desperately needed to learn as a person whose pride is a big shield for me. And when I turned 18, Lori asked me to come live with her for the summer. Trevor and I were going to move in together in the fall of our freshman year in college anyways, and my home life was becoming more and more unbearable. Uh, so I moved to Austin for the summer months right before I moved to Chicago. Uh, the summer gave me a lot of hope for my future. She started out in an abusive household where there were drugs and alcohol and hardly any food. Um, knowing that she came from almost nothing and is where she is today is amazing to me. I set the bar very low for myself as a kid. I always just wanted to be able to afford basic food and housing and be a stable person. Um, but seeing how she has built an entire life of love and family and happiness has made me raise my expectations for myself. Uh, Lori did not have her own family. She made up her own and she adopted so many people into her crazy hodgepodge bunch of people. Um, people who I call aunt or grandma or friend um, because she's introduced me to them. Uh, these people have all had shitty childhoods and have had fantastic adult lives are always there to lend me a piece of advice. I feel alone a lot of the time, but seeing someone build a family of misfits over 50 years of life inspires me to do the same. Last year, Lori found out that she had five siblings. Her mom always lied to her about who her dad really was and told her that he didn't care about her. But Lori's Aunt Dodo, she gifted her with a 23andMe test for Christmas, which is a genealogy test. And um, when you go on 23andMe, it connects you with different family members that you're related to by blood or by DNA or whatever. Um, and several of her family members on her dad's side popped up. So she got in touch with her brother Jimmy through Facebook, um, who come to find out lives in Chicago, <laughs> which is crazy. Uh, Lori, Trevor, and I got to meet him when we came for college visits, when we were auditioning and things, you know, for Chicago colleges. And um, she was slowly introduced to the rest of her family. 
her other four siblings, John, who actually went to Columbia College Chicago for film, which is freaking crazy um, that we go there now. Uh, Allie, who I met recently uh, last year, and she is awesome. She also used to live in Chicago for a while. Um, And Maggie and Libby, I haven't met them, but they also live in random places. Maggie lives in New York. Libby lives in uh, Oklahoma. So um, Lori traveled kind of around the country to go meet all of her siblings, which is, I think is awesome. Um, she also met her dad who had no idea about her. Um, and I, I tell this story, this part of her story, not because I think that it's a super relatable one. Uh, I don't think that everyone's going to just learn that they have five siblings (laughs) someday that they didn't know about. Um, but, uh, I share this because Lori said that, All she ever wanted was a family, but by the time that she met hers, she already had a family that she built herself. They were basically just a bonus family. It made me realize that you can find loving and caring and cool people just about anywhere, and they don't need to be related to you. Um, When Lori was a teenager, she had a family friend. We now call her Grandma Charlie. And Charlie had a lot of money, but she only had one kid, and her kid was kind of a delinquent, um, to be honest. She ended up in jail and um, kind of wasted their money. Uh, So instead, she invested in Lori. She took her to dance classes. She bought her a car. She helped her pay for housing in college, um, all because she just believed in Lori and what she could be. And Charlie would often say, why not you? And those are words that I hear so often now from Lori. She says, why not you? You're just as as capable as anyone else. Um, And now Lori pays my rent. She kind of passed the torch. And um, she pays my rent so I can focus on school. And I have never been more grateful for anything. Um, She has made me a part of her family. And I'm not going to lie, sometimes family fights. (laughs) I think that she can be a little too clingy, and she thinks that I'm unemotional. Um, And we definitely don't see eye to eye on everything, just like family doesn't always see eye to eye on everything. Um, But we both believe in love, and we both believe in women. Uh, She's helping me beat my ACE score. Uh, She is a light for the people who have no one, and the people who have no one to believe in them. Uh, And she helps us all defeat our ACE score. She helps us all to succeed. And that is why Lori Stewart is my unsung heroine. And I will always sing her praises. In her story, The More You Know, Bianca Rades takes a look into classical music, female composers and musicians who have received little recognition, but have definitely shaped the music world as we know it now. Hello, friends, and welcome to the first ever episode of the More You Know podcast, where we do the research so you can sound smart. My name is Bianca Radice, and wow, I'm so excited to talk to you guys about what I researched this week. So to give you just a little bit of background about why I chose this topic, I'm a sophomore in college, and my freshman year, I went to a school called Baldwin Wallace University. Uh, It's in a tiny town in Ohio called Berea. Shout out, Berea. And I studied classical music there for about a year. It was so exciting and so interesting to see 
the foundation of music and how it was created and how it progressed through the times and different composers and musicians that contributed to what we have now. But I noticed that there weren't a lot of female names popping up. I mean, there was a couple, but they were more in modern day time periods. And just because I didn't hear about the women of the past who were musicians doesn't mean they didn't exist. I wasn't really sure what to expect when I started researching this topic, but I really dug myself into a classical music hole. Um, I learned about a lot of beautiful compositions and amazing female musicians and all their contributions to classical music and just music in general. And um, I'll be talking to you today about three amazing, talented, inventive female composers and musicians, as well as a couple modern day ones sharing some pieces of music with you and talking about what they did for classical music and how they're keeping classical music alive. So without further ado, let's begin. So the first composer we're going to talk about is Hildegard von Bingen. She's from the medieval time period. This is the first time period where we can begin to be fairly certain as to how the music that actually survived really sounded. The most notable manuscripts come from a place of learning which is connected with the very powerful church at the time. So a lot of music has a very religious basis to it. Today, we think of Hildegard von Bingen as one of the first identifiable composers in the history of Western music. Most medieval composers wrote under the name Anonymous, but there were no mentions of her music in any reference book before 1979, and she barely warranted an entry in the 1990s edition of the New Groove Dictionary of Music. Interest in Hildegard started to grow around the 800th anniversary of her death in 1979 when Philip Pickett and his new London consort gave possibly the first English performance of four of Hildegard's songs, and in 1983, a success of A Feather on a Breath of God, which is an album of her music, sparked people's curiosity about who wrote these beautiful compositions. Now, there are hundreds of recordings of Hildegard's music, numerous biographies, and not to mention novels, popular histories, documentaries, and websites hailing her as an early feminist and a New Age guru. Accounts of her lifetime describe her as an accomplished woman, a visionary, or a prophet. She was also known as the Sibyl of the Rhine, and she was a pioneer who wrote practical books on biology, botany, medicine, theology, and the arts. Hildegard died in 1179 in the monastery she'd founded in Rupitsberg, near Bingen. Though she was known throughout medieval Europe as a stateswoman and a seer, there's no evidence that her music was ever heard outside of her own convent. I think it really speaks to her musical genius that despite all the other works that she put out, it's her musical compositions that stood the test of time and are what she's most well known for. We're currently listening to Louise Franck's Symphony No. 3 in G minor, Opus 36, and the movement No. 3, Scherzo Vivici. 
Louise Franck was a French composer, pianist, and a teacher. She was born in 1804 into a bohemian family in Paris, and she grew up surrounded by sculptors, painters, and other artistic women. She studied piano from a young age, and her talents picked up and were encouraged by the many famous musicians around her. After becoming interested in composing, she applied for the prestigious Paris Conservatory at the age of 15. After completing her studies, Franck started her career as a concert pianist, and she became quite famous in the 1830s. In 1842, she became the only woman to be appointed to the position of a professor at the Paris Conservatory in the 19th century. She stayed at the conservatory for 30 years, and over time she became one of the greatest piano professors in Europe. Despite not having the popular profile of her male composer counterparts, Louise Franck never gave up writing music. She created masterful orchestral symphonies and overtures, and her two piano quintets were held in particular high regard amongst the Parisian critics. She even won the Châtillet Prize in 1861 and in 1869. Although she was writing all this acclaimed music, Franck was paid far less than all of her male professors at the conservatory. She wanted to change this and often protested to the authorities, trying to gain equality for nearly a decade. She also let her music do the talking, and after a very successful premiere of her Nonette, which is a musical composition for nine voices or instruments, she once again demanded equal pay, and this time, it was granted. I have never heard of this woman before, and once I started listening to her music, I could not stop. Her compositions are just breathtaking. Clara Schumann was born on September 13, 1819. Her mother and father were both musicians and encouraged her musicianship from a young age. She studied piano from the early age of five and by 1835 had established a reputation throughout Europe as a child prodigy. In 1838, she was honored by the Austrian court and was elected into the prestigious Society of Friends of Music in Vienna. Despite strong objections by her father, she married Robert Schumann in 1840, and they had eight children between 1841 and 1854. Though family responsibilities curtailed her career, she taught at the Leipzig Conservatory, where she composed and toured frequently. Clara and Robert worked tirelessly together, and when Robert couldn't find success, Clara was often the one touring and making money for the family. They collaborated together, they composed together, they had a family together, it was just magical. It's noted that Robert explicitly incorporated phrases of Clara's music as a private code they shared in some of his pieces. Beginning in 1853, the Schumanns developed a close professional and personal friendship with the composer Johannes Brahms, and Clara maintained that friendship after her husband's untimely death in 1856 at the age of 46. Since Clara more or less stopped composing after this tragedy, her oeuvre is relatively small, just 23 published works, and it compromises almost exclusively solo piano pieces and chamber music. Despite that, she was known around Europe and by many composers as one of the most virtuosic and talented pianists that Europe had to offer. So the piece we're listening to right now is Clara Schumann's Piano Concerto in A Minor, Opus 7.
You're currently listening to a song called Destiny off of an album called Steel Hammer, written by a composer named Julia Wolfe. When Julia was growing up, her parents loved classical music, which is why when she was learning piano as a child, she preferred to play show tunes, which is very different than the music you're listening to now. In high school, she picked up the guitar and she began writing folk songs, mimicking Joni Mitchell, but she had no real interest in pursuing composition until, at the University of Michigan, she stumbled on a class titled Creative Musicianship. She spent two years laboring on a single piano piece guided by the mathematical methods of serialism. On a trip to New York, she became friends with Michael Gordon and David Lang, both whom had recently attended Yale's graduate program and encouraged her strongly to apply. She then went to Yale in 1984 and studied primarily with the young maverick Martin Burschnick, who was a rare member of the academy who taught minimalistic music. In 1987, the three decided to sponsor a scrappy marathon concert in a downtown art gallery, one that would place the music of their friends alongside those of elders from the various music world, and Wolf dubbed it the quote, bang on a can marathon. The marathon was a breath of fresh air in the new music scene, and as the trio of composers shepherded subsequent downtown marathons and festivals under the bang on a can label, Wolf crafted a greedy compositional sound in a series of works that included The Vermer Room in 1989 and a colorful string quartet called The Four Marys in 1991. Wolf and her colleagues acquired a reputation for rock-inflected, post-minimalistic idiom. Quote, I'm definitely influenced by Led Zeppelin and Beethoven, she remarked in a documentary. I like crude sounds. Wolf has taught at NYU Steinhardt School since 2009. Wolf is selected as a 2016 MacArthur Fellow. She's the first full-time classical composer to receive a MacArthur Fellow since 2003. At 57, Wolf is known equally as a composer and as a co-founder of the new music collective Bang on a Can. For much of her career, Wolf was overshadowed by her Bang on a Can compatriots David Lang and her husband Michael Gordon, both outspoken and prolific composers in a male-dominated field. Quote, There was definitely a stepwise building, she said in an interview earlier this year, until you felt like now it was the time to make a bigger statement. That time for broader canvases arrived in the form of two recent and celebrated large-scale works, the 2009 Steel Hammer, which is what we're listening to right now, and the 2014 Anthracite Fields, which won the 2015 Pulitzer Prize in music. My piece, Steel Hammer, is the story of the John Henry Ballad and of a compilation and a, and a response to over 200 versions of this ballad. And what became interesting to me in that case was that the ballad had traveled and changed, and so the piece became a story about the story. Music has been a part of me since day one, and I'm almost certain that classical was the first kind of music that I ever listened to. Classical music invites listeners to take in and follow a narrative that's unfolding through sound. It's one of the most incredible, immersive, powerful experiences that I personally believe you can feel. It's so much more than a concerto or a sonata. It's art. It's genuinely art. I really hope you guys learned something today and enjoyed this podcast. Um, I had a wonderful time researching and listening to all these phenomenal musicians. It was just, it was really a great experience. The last song that we're listening to is called Lost by a wonderful cellist named Zoe Keating. I highly recommend you look her up. And thanks for listening. I'm Bianca Redise, and this has been The More You Know. Mm-hmm.
really do hope that you enjoy these stories. Thank you. Thank you.